to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are um, going to be turning to uh, Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there in your device, we'll also have um, the scriptures up on the screen. Um, last week we looked at the, the type of community that believers ought to be living in, if you remember that, and we talked about those ideas of the um, indicatives and the imperatives, and so the indicative things that are true about us because of what Christ has done, um, that they indicate a change in us, they're indicative, and flowing out of the indicative, what God has done, then, then are the imperatives, the commands, and so um, the, the type of characteristics that characteristics that Paul brought out last week in this idea of being in union with Christ were um, this idea of unity and love, if you remember in those first verses um, in chapter 2. And then the second one was humility. If you remember that, looking at others, seeing others as more significant than yourself. And that, that's just a difficult one. You know, that, that's a very difficult thing to actually not just lie to yourself and kind of, oh, look at them. Oh, that's sad. Oh, Oh, I'm supposed to look at them as better. Oh, I, I think they're good. Like, that, that's not it. Like, moving to, instead of just that little um, sentence in your head, to actually treating them as if they were more significant. Because you're going to look to your own needs. So the third part he brought up there was acts of care. Kind of this idea of putting action to the interests, to the needs of others. And so looking and, and taking action to the needs. Not, he didn't mean looking, just staring. Like, well, yeah, they, they have some needs. And I'm just staring, I'm looking to him. No, it's actually taking uh, steps of action. And so we looked at that. And so Paul was saying that if you have been changed and transformed by Christ, if the Spirit is changing you, remember that any participation in the Spirit, these should be evidence in your relationships, particularly in the local body. And again, this section in uh, Philippians, um, we read these in our American version of very individualized and private faith. This is actually a press on um, the corporate body. So these are things that the body should be doing. Yes, it does apply to individuals, but also it, apply, it applies to the, the entire corporate body is the, the main thrust of what he's saying. Um, so this week we're going to now turn from the type of characteristics believers should have evidence. Remember those imperatives, go and live this way, people, because of what God has done. And now he's going he's to bring in again kind of this, I remember I talked about a cycle, because look at the humility of Christ. And if we didn't know, there's this kind of set-apart little hymn that he inserts into this. Um, and so um, we're going to see these things this morning. Um, just simple two points. It's, it's basically what Christ has done and what God the Father has done. But, but the way I have that lined out there is Christ's heart, which leads to Christ's actions, and then that leads to Christ's path or Christ's pathway, uh, the way he followed through with that humility into action steps of obedience, even death on a cross. And then we see the Father's heart in response to that, in agreement with that. Um, the Father's heart, then the Father's actions, and the Father's restoration to glory for Jesus. So let's read that in Philippians chapter 2. 
Um, we're going to go, we're going to start at verse 5. Now, um, like I've talked about this Christ hymn that you may or may not have heard before. Um, I didn't come up with this, by the way. I'm not, I'm not like just like, hey, I think this fits. Uh, so this is like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, scholars from the 300s, 400s, 500s, 600s, all the way through. But um, we're going to start out with verse 5 because it's kind of a connection verse between verses 1 through 4 and then 5 is kind of this, hey, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And, and he's saying you can act this way, verses 1 through 4, if you put on the mind of Christ. But let me show you how beautiful the mind of Christ is. And verses 6 through 11 is not you go do. It is be amazed at this Jesus. Be amazed at this plan of God. And so I hope that's what happens with us. So verse 5 there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Father, we do come to you just asking for you to let our hearts enjoy the beauty of these verses the way that your heart enjoys the beauty and the depth of these verses. That before you created anything, eons and eons and eternity passed, when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were totally glorified, no sin around them, totally in, in complete harmony and unity and holiness and glorification, not lacking anything, that that's what we're going to see today. A picture of that beforehand and then at the end, that you are restoring all things to that place of glory again. And we get a glimpse of this in this little Christ hymn. We thank you for that. And we, we pray that you would let us um, feel and understand and think the way that you think about yourself in this. In your name we pray, amen. So um, this is um, the first thing that I want to bring in in verse 5 there, this connecting verse, um, is just this idea of a community, so a corporate body that's captivated in worship. So he's, he's saying, if, if this has changed you in verses 1 and 2 there, if all this stuff has taken place and you're acting in this type of unity and humility and service towards one another, uh, then have this mind in you that, that it's yours. It's available in Christ Jesus. So that's verse 5 is this connecting verse. Um, and, and it's calling the church to awe. It's not, hey, now keep on going and doing. It's pause and look and, and look at the high, uh, ex, uh, exalted glory uh, of God in this. And so um, he's calling the community of believers to obey Christ. Um, that, that unity and humility and all those things because of their worship for Christ. So that's what um, we see in, in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? The same thing there, that, that you wouldn't be conformed to the ways of this world, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, focused on what Christ has done for you. So it's not, hey, go and do all these things, and if you do all these obedient things, then you will earn your way to closeness with God. No, because God has already redeemed you and put you in position 
already of union with Christ, because of that flowing out of that, that should bring worship to your heart. And now you act out of worship. Everything that you're doing is, is a lifestyle of worship. Um, so when Paul says it in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, that's what he's talking about. Now, this section, um, you've probably heard this taught. I think I've heard this taught. I think if you just pulled off some books off of you know, Mardell's bookshelf on the book of Philippians, some commentary, um, it's very easy to extrapolate that and make this about, hey, Jesus is humble, you go be humble, which is, is all right. I mean, we, we do follow him as an example, but I, I think you're going to see in this very clearly, this is not just about Christ's ethical example. Earlier, those parts of, uh, of being humbled and, and acting in service, oh, we saw Jesus go and serve, yes, in humility, yes, considering others, even low, sinful people, he, he was loving them, he wasn't exalting them, he wasn't exalting us, so don't, you know, there's churches in Tulsa that, that believe that, that he exalted us, that wasn't what he was doing, he was just going, in my created beings, I have a heart to go and serve them, and so yes, we should have that same heart. We're going to see in this section, this is not go emulate him, because the reality is you can't go emulate what this is talking about. Um, so the emphasis here is on what Christ and God have done and their heart. And so um, it's not just an ethical example. This goes to our union with Christ. This is not the old bracelet WWJD. If you remember those, we should bring those back out and make some money on them. And so uh, just modified a little bit. Um, it's not look at what Jesus did and you go do that also. Because we can't do those things. Um, again, it's this idea of our union with Christ. In this Christ hymn, the point is definitely not to think that we can emulate or copy because we cannot do the things he did that's brought up in this. So, namely, his incarnation and then his humiliation and his exaltation. So in this Christ hymn, we're going to see it's, Paul is borrowing from this hymn the picture of Christ's incarnation. And for them to just to go, this is astounding to think through this reality that Jesus being God, with the Father, total equality, he humbled himself and he came down. He, choose, he chose to come in human form. That's shocking. We are so familiar with that story, it's not shocking anymore. That's a crazy, crazy idea. If you put all other religions over here, that's a crazy idea. And the first line of this hymn made people shocked. Just, 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 that's crazy. Like, Is this really what they believe? The second part, his humiliation. Now take it another step, his humiliation. Jesus, as God, choosing to come in human form and then to die on a cross. The most shameful thing in that culture. The most shameful thing in the world. And for, for all the cultures understood that about a cross. And for him to come and die. For who? For, for, for rich people? For, for kings? For powerful people? No, for the lowliest. And that was the shocking message and the shocking beauty of this. And then his exaltation to see that Jesus, being fully God, fully human, came as a slave for all, dying for our sins, and then the Father restores him to his, his exalted position. And so just a beautiful picture there. So uh, anyone want to try those things? Any, anyone want to do an incarnation? Can't do that, can we? Anyone want to take on that type of humiliation? Like, we, 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 you have moments where you think you're really humble or something, you know, and then you get prideful about it, like it's like this cycle, like you're really proud of yourself for being humble. And so then uh, the exaltation, anyone? So this is not about you in this one, right? This is not about me. This is not about the greatest of, the, of us. Um, and so it's just a beautiful picture for us to pause and to consider the, the glory of God in this. Um, this is an awe-inspiring section that should lead us to worship. Um, 
So um, let's look at this Christ hymn first. And, and over the centuries, um, there's been two questions that have been asked because scholars, um, as they're going through the Greek in this, they get to this section, and we wouldn't notice it in English, but in, they get to this section and they go, hold on, this is a little bit different. Um, so they've asked these questions. Um, is Philippians 2, 6 through 11, a hymn? Meaning in the early church, as people were learning about this story about this, this carpenter's son who was a peasant who had this following, this sect, called the way at the time if this is true what do we know about him because they're telling us we don't have to go to temple like we used to we don't have to go and make the sacrifices like we used to now some are people some people are saying hey we don't have to be become a jew remember the judaizers that, they, that said hey you got to be, be circumcised you got to go about all moses law all the old testament law and they said hold it we're hearing that people are being saved their sins forgiven without going through all that and so what is true about Jesus? And so they believe that this was an early thing. If you've studied the, uh, the creeds and those different things there that, that, would, that the early church studied and they agreed upon, um, this is part of forming that. So this was God's word where we get the creeds, the, the Apostles' Creed. They look to Philippians 2, 6 through 11 to go, he was fully God and fully man. And so some beautiful things. Now for us, we go, of course he was. Or, and some people may have the question, you may not have studied very much in a systematic theology of, was, I thought he was like 100% God, like 50% man, or 50% God, 50% man. He, he was 100% God, 100% man. Again, you can't emulate that. And so that, that's a mystery. There's reasons why that had to be there. But that was one of the first questions. And so they believe that this was a hymn that they put to rhythmic music, and uh, that, that people could sing it a cappello. And the way, reason for that is just like, you know, A, B, C, D. Remember all those things that like little kids learn? You put it to that rhythmic um, stanza. And, and now in that poetic form, it's easily, it, it's easily memorized and it's easy to pass on to others, right? So it spread. So as that became popular, just like now, you know, Taylor Swift song, I don't know them, whatever they are, a lot of people know them. I probably wouldn't know it, I just wouldn't know it was her, right? I wouldn't know if it was her or Travis Kelsey singing it, but it would be a Taylor Swift song. And so, but, but we all know the words to it, and you're kind of humming, and you're like, why am I doing singing a pop song that I don't even like this person? And so, uh, nothing against Taylor Swift, don't throw stuff. But just like, I wouldn't even know, but, but you knew the words to it. And so, this was an existing form before Paul brought it into his section that does not mean that it was not inspired by god because the holy spirit is the one who inspired him to insert this and it's truth about god and about christ so that that doesn't take away from is this true inspiration they battled through those things for centuries um, and then the second question there is is paul the author of that hymn and so uh, there's some reasons for that biblical scholars if you go into deep theology so if you go to seminary and you want to go into new testament or you want to go into certain things you can specifically do your phd on e even just a little section of pauline's um uh, the pauline epistles or the pauline uh, theology and they're taking paul's name and saying pauline uh johannine so john uh the apostle they call it the johannine scriptures or the uh, johannine theology versus a pauline theology and you can get your phd in just that and those guys who do that and they go and study for 12 hours on that stuff they go this is not pauline theology this is not pauline literature this is a completely different context so there's some reasons that that they don't believe paul wrote this it's a different genre, so I have some reasons up there. that It's a different genre and a different context of the letter. It's very clear. It's also very um, clear that it's set apart in its completeness, meaning it has a clear beginning 
in verse 6, and it has a clear ending, and then Paul goes back to writing his letter. In fact, if you go into verse uh, chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3 in your Bible, um, it's an interesting thing. You may not have noticed this in chapter 3 of Philippians 4, but he goes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, he goes on to chapter 4 after that. So the, there's a, we'll get to that, and we'll talk about that also. Like He started back, now finally, my brothers, here's this thought. And then there's still chapter 4 coming. So they, they think that there was a little bit of a pause, maybe some time passed when he got to chapter 3 and was thinking he was ending the letter. And then he, kind of like an airplane, kind of was coming down and did a false landing, and then he rose back up. Kind of maybe like my sermons, like you're thinking, I think Sankey's about finished here. Oh no, we got a whole other section that we're going into. And so uh, that's what Paul does with this. And so in this section of part 2, they go, this is, it has a clear beginning, a clear ending. Um, it's, it's very clear that he uses uh, some unusual vocabulary that are in this that he's never used in other places. So certain Greek words that are used in this, Paul never chose to use those words. And he could have, he never chose to. And then themes and things that Paul puts in about the church, he usually adds in about tied to Christ's redemption work. He'll add in about the glory of God, but then he'll add in the church uh, uh, along with that, and he leaves that out. And so um, just some clear themes, a lot of those things that he, he brings out. And then just the theological content. Um, it, it's, it's not expressed in any of the other Pauline writings. Um, in all of those things, um, it does not mean that the Holy Spirit could have inspired him to just, you know, you know have you have a thought and you have a, a feeling and you kind of maybe take a little note or write something in your phone, and, and he could have done that. So people aren't saying that definitely it was no way Paul could do it, but it just doesn't fit. And so the beauty of that is that Paul is taking what the understanding of the Spirit had given and that this has been passed around, memorized, and probably sung in places. Um, and there's other, in, there's other places in Colossians and other letters where he does the same thing. He takes a, a section, it's like three or four sentences, and it, it was passed along. It was a creed that was going around, and it was very clear truths about Jesus called a Christology. So as we look at this, we're going to go with this guy. His name's Ernst Lohmeyer. There's, in the same way that they question, you know, who wrote it, and was this an existing hymn, um, there's, there's 150 or 200 different guys' ideas about, well, then if it was a hymn, how did it flow? How did it go? Now, they, they, weren't, they were probably speaking the Aramaic a lot. Um, the Greek would flow a little bit differently, so they were trying to figure out how these would flow into a song. So this guy, uh, among hundreds, is one of the ones that kind of rose to the top, like uh, number one ranking as far as this is the one that probably is really solid. It's not very much off from the original Greek, and so um, it, it matches really well. So we're going to look through that a couple of slides there. And the biggest difference is just in verse 6 there. The one existing in the form of God, he did not consider it an advantage to exploit. Where our versions may say he didn't, he didn't grasp onto it, didn't hold on, but an advantage to exploit. And there's reasons for that. And so that's the biggest change. And then um, in the second part there, in verses 9 through 11, um, the same thing. There, there's not a lot of difference. Um, I, he, he says... Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. We're going to go into this in a second. Um, and he breaks it down to where like the first line states something. And then the second and the third line of, of like verse 9, that defines what he meant. And then in verse 10, they kind of, uh, 9, 10 all flow together, or 10 and 11 flow together. And so they, they believe that they memorized it. Like here's the statement and then here's what that meant. And we'll get into that as we go. So let's go and look at the first one. The heart, the attitude of Christ. Because we said we're going to look at Christ's heart and then Christ's actions and Christ's um, his pathway. And so, first of all, that, that first sentence there, the one existing in the form of God. Um, 
That goes to the heart of Christ. It goes because, think through this, he is in the form of God for eons of eternity. You may not have thought about this. My mom always, to her dying day, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but, but, but my mom could not imagine that there's anything before little baby Jesus. Like little baby Jesus in the manger that grew up and died, she could not imagine that Jesus existed pre-incarnate, so before he put on human flesh. But Colossians and uh, Philippians and Romans and, and Old Testament places are very clear, Hebrews, that he was always existing with the Father. He always existed. He was always fully God. Um, he was part of creation. So Jesus the Son, uh, Jesus the second person of the Trinity, um, before he had the name Jesus even, so that's hard to remember. It's like, oh goodness, now, now you're, are, are we sure we're even a church? Like, how can Jesus not have the name Jesus? But the second holy person of the Trinity, um, along with God the Father and along with God the Spirit, were there in, in, in Genesis 1 creating. And so in the word there, if you remember that, for the Spirit there is the Spirit hovered uh, above the face of the earth. It, it was the, the picture there is of this master orchestra guy that, that's literally the, the visible thing. It's just a beautiful picture. I think there's actually... Uh, and uh, back in the, I don't know if it's the 300 to 500s, a picture of almost like this type of orchestra leading uh, 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 of the, the creation of the world that his masterfully was doing all this stuff. And so just a, it's a beautiful, visible picture of what was going on. But the son was involved also. He created all things. He, in all things, exists through him and for him. And so this is saying that, that second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate state, he decided, the one existing in form, he didn't consider it an advantage to exploit. And the Greek word there is harpogmos, um, to be grasped or to be held onto. So think about that. Um, he chose not to exploit his equality with the Father. Why? Why would he do that? His love for the Father. His, his love for you and I. And, and the Father was deserving, Right? We were not, and he wasn't foolish. It wasn't like he, like the father, kind of you know, kicked him to the curb, like he fell out, and like, oh man, this is a mess down here. I didn't know it was going to be this bad. Uh, what, what's the plan? They knew beforehand. So eons before they created the first element, the first Adam, before they created anything, there was the plan of the cross. That, that's some crazy thinking. Before they created, it wasn't Plan B. It wasn't a, uh, like, oh, we didn't know. We thought Adam and Eve were going to do, do so good. They knew, and, that's, and still they come with this plan. They still created, they still did all this, and so a beautiful picture there. Um, at the time, think through this, um, all different gods and deities that were famous and known in, in those times, all the different Greek gods, all the different um, pantheon of gods, all different religions have what? Have a picture of this high deity, and it's a picture of mankind trying to work their way towards that god trying to work their way and be good enough, be good enough, be good enough. And some gods, and even in Islam, you have two little angels, one on one shoulder and one on, uh, on the other. One is counting your good deeds, the other is counting your bad deeds. And even if you had like one billion good deeds and like a thousand bad deeds, guess what? Allah may have a bad day and go, yep, you have enough good deeds, but no soup for you. Too bad, you're going away. So Allah in the Quran, it's said that he, he, he could just very ambiguously even if you had more good deeds, decide to send you to hell forever. Um, so we have a picture of deity and mankind working their way up. And here's this one crazy story. The one existing in the form of God, he comes down to man 
comes in human form, unheard of, and now dies on a cross for mankind. So a beautiful, beautiful story. We, we just can't imagine just, just the, the type of love that is. Um, because of his divine essence, it uniquely qualified him for suffering. Um, this goes to the question of this. So uh, in the same way people have asked the question, um, was Jesus fully human or like you know, 20% human? Was he fully human and fully God? Yes, he was, and he had to be. But this also goes to the question of why did Jesus have to die? You may have thought it through that at some point to go, why couldn't God, if God's a forgiving God and he's loving, why couldn't he just go, just wipe the slate clean? I'm loving, I'm forgiving, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. There had to be something that atoned for sin. Something had to take just the wrath for sin. And when we go, well, couldn't he just be forgiving? We have no idea of what the existence of God's holiness is. We can't fathom. It would be fearful for half a second. If, if there was a room, so like remember the, the picture that he, he provided for us. This was for our sake, humans. Let's, let's create this temple thing with these, these little markers, these uh, drapes and everything. And then up in this one area, we're going to have the Holy of Holies. Don't mess around with the Holy of Holies, right? And so they would hear the, oh, goodness, another one died. Hey, this is the eighth one. Let's start tying a rope to their leg. Because when, we, when they, they don't take it serious and they go in the Holy of Holies, uh, kind of jacking around, and then we hear the thud, we're going to have to pull his dead body out because he wasn't taking seriously the holiness of God. We have no idea. And so why did, did Jesus have to die? He had to be fully human because we needed a representative of the first Adam. We needed a new Adam. And at the same time, we needed someone who wouldn't be like Adam and everyone else that was sinful. We needed a holy perfect one to come and take so what was that picture of the the unblemished lamb the unblemished lamb the unblemished lamb this sacrifice needs to be holy and perfect and it was just a picture for us so we needed jesus to be fully man to represent us as our new adam and we needed him to be fully god holy how beautiful of a statement the one existing in the form of god we can't even fathom we we don't know how he does this we we can't we can't fathom how to to make a blade of grass you know, like we know it's made up of atoms. Just this last week, you know, the Nobel Prize, it was given because they figured out on, a, on an atom how the, the protons, how they just go crazy on there. And, how they're, and they're, they're so proud. They think this is going to change everything. It's a huge deal. But they, they, they know now in like one millionth of a second that these protons are flying around in a cell and, and they, it's a blur. They already knew that. They knew it was moving. So they're like, we captured the blur. Like that's how bad we are. And this guy, this guy just spoke it into existence, and it ended up perfect. You know, not a whole bunch of protons just flying out, not of the universe that's out of control, no chaos, but everything working. The fact that 300 million cells inside your body right now die off every second, and 300 million new cells are, are, are coming to life um, at the same time. Just how does that happen? That's how good he is. That's phenomenal. And the one who did that didn't consider it something to be grasped, not to be exalted, to go, I'm going to come and serve. So, beautiful picture there of Christ's heart. Um, it's revealing something about God. We'd have to say, does that matter to us? What does this do to you when you think about that high and exalted, holy God? And if we're not careful, it's kind of blah 
Yeah. Yeah, he, he was God, and he came to flesh, and he died for our sins. And, and it just doesn't matter to us. And so then Christ's actions, his act of self-emptying was the incarnation. That next sentence says, but he emptied himself. So in the form of God, but then he goes and he empties himself. Well then, in Lohmeyer's version, how does he empty himself? Well, he took the form of a slave, and he became human. What does it mean for him to be emptied? That's, that's the answer. He did those things. So his actions was he, he chose to empty himself. He's fully God, fully man. He takes the form of a slave. Horrific wording in our time and in their time. People knew what it looked like to have a, a master and then slaves. What they dressed like, what they wore, what was their value. And yet, the one in the form of God come and he humbled himself, he emptied himself and took on that kind of servant form. What did we just hear about last week? See others as more significant than yourself. And you're talking about the one in the form of God going, I will lay down my rights, I will lay down my privileges, I will lay down my honor, my glory, and I will come to be almost a nobody to serve people who didn't even deserve it. And so just a beautiful, shocking picture. The wording is shocking. Um, again, it goes to this idea of, of is, is Jesus fully God at the same time being fully man? And there were over 300 years of arguments and people, thousands of people killed on that argument. Um, and so to say, is he truly God or was he, was he just man? And, and he laid down his deity. The question was, did he lay down his deity and he was no longer God? And he was just a human, just a body. And that's wrong. Um, and so, do you see what this beautiful triune God is trying to show us and try to get us to understand and to know and to love about Him? Um, in John 13, if you remember this, um, Jesus is, is at the setting of the, the Lord's Supper, and it's the, it's, it's gathered, they've gathered together. So John 13, so I think 12, and then it goes into 13 through um, 17 there is all building up to the cross. Um, the, all those chapters, and so this is when it says it starts out, and Jesus knowing the hour, the Father's clarified to him, this is it. And they gathers the disciples together. He's had his three and a half years of ministry. In verse 3 of John 13, he says, Jesus knowing the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from the Father, and that he was going back to God. He was always existing, equal with God. He was equal with God here, and now I'm about to go back, and these guys have no clue of what that escalator looks like. Because you know what they've been saying all along, like, hey, are you about to restore the kingdom? Hey, could, could I be next to you when you do that? Here's the kind of robe I'd like. Here's the kind of chair I'd like. I mean, it's like, you know, WWF wrestling. They're wanting it to, like, look fancy and crazy, and he's going, you have no idea what this, this is going to look like. He rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking on a basin, or a, a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. Can you imagine those first few seconds of that? Sitting there seeing how this guy has treated people, the miracles he's performed, the things that he said that hit you in the heart so many times, uh, just his um, completely um, different take on the world, on our hearts, on, on others, and even on our enemies, the way he was treated. And then to see him take this towel in this basin and go and start with the first guy washing and so, so remember, you know, what would you do? You know, probably like, oh man, I'm like, where's the bathroom? I'll, I'll be back. You know, uh, Jamie used to talk about how 
when we were at meet and greet time in big churches, she would always like either try to like get busy in her purse because she just you know like she she, always, she feared the awkward she like she feared that time of like having to have these like hey how how are you hey how are you so she would like get busy in her purse or she would like get her purse and kind of put her head down and just go to the bathroom. So if any of you introverts kind of recognize that that feeling of like oh gosh I I hate the meet and greet time, and so. What would you do when he starts doing that? Like, you got like three guys left. Like, uh, and so Peter fully steps up and is like, hey, hey, Lord, or hey, hey, Jesus, not my feet, not me. Again, I'm humble, right? And so you see the pride in Jesus going, no, you don't even understand what's taking place here. Um, Jesus answered, said, well, what I'm doing, you do not understand. Afterward, you will understand. And then Peter's like, you'll never wash my feet. And he's like, if I don't wash your feet, you can have nothing of this salvation. And so just a beautiful picture, like you don't understand what, what this, this picture is relating to the cross, and it's relating to the very core of who I am. This is who I am. This is what I come for. I come to serve, not to be served. Um, you think through this week, even the humility factor. Humility is not a value in our culture. Humility is not a value in our, our, our city. It's not in our country, in the world. Power, dominance is. Even this week with, uh, in our politics with uh, McCarthy uh, being ousted. And so there's all the different stories, and I'm not going into those at all. I'm just saying it had never happened again. But when you see someone who's rose up into to this great position, you, you never see anyone going like, in this great position to, to go, I'm willingly going to humble myself and just remove myself and go from greatness to lowly, right? We never see that. Uh, nothing great about going from great to lowly, except in God's economy, it was everything. This one in the form of God didn't consider it something to be held on to, but yet come to serve and to die. And so we see those actions, and his pathway was... Um, of obedience that third section there and in appearance being found as human form he humbled himself so what does it mean there in appearance being found in human form he he humbled himself to do that and then he became obedient to death even death on a cross it's one thing to go from great to lowly Um, it's completely other to go and suffer while innocent on purpose we just don't have examples of that um his, cross, his pathway led to the cross. His, his heart led to his actions, and his actions led to the cross. And so um, he was not recognized as transcendent God. That's why they hung him on the cross. He was not seen as God, but a lowly human, in appearance being found in human form and humbling himself. He followed through with the redemptive plan of God through agonizing obedience most radically displayed on the cross. So the first sentence in the hymn starts with the one existing in the form of God, and now it ends with death on a cross. Just think about that. Just the joy in the Father's heart, like what a surprise. The one in the form of God, that high, always existing, preeminent one, death on a cross. Man, if there's anything that our Christianity in America, if, if we could just all agree, let's take a year, two years, just to even just contemplate and meditate on that. You got struggles with sin, some temptation? The one in human form, uh, the one in, in form of God, death on a cross. Just those two parts. I think I can do without whatever it was I was about to jump into. 
I think I can say no to that temptation. Death on a cross. This first half of the hymn is brought to an an unimaginable scene, a deafening silence on a dark night in Jerusalem that all the world and all creation would be defined by. And think through for us how, how blah that is to us. In the form of God, death on a cross. Everything that we are, everything that we work for, everything we strive after and live for, everyone around us, everyone that we see, everyone that we've ever seen, everyone that's ever lived on this planet will be defined by the last words of that section, death on a cross. It's going to come down to every person standing before him. What have you done with my son on the cross? I see your, uh, I see your accomplishments. I see your successes. By the way, all that was gifts from me. But what have you done with my son on the cross? Was it blah to you? Again, I've, I've, I've hit on in the Bible Belt. We, we know about it. It's just not changing us. It just really doesn't matter that much. Again, if, if in America we could just pause and get a hold of that, just, just the, at the foot of the cross to focus on that. Um, every person, every born, they will deal with this. I see all that you've lived for, but, but where are you in relation to his cross? The cross displayed the most brutal and disgusting form of humanity's cruelty, but it was um, so disgraceful and shameful of a death, and yet it displayed the most loving expression imaginable. God lowering himself into flesh, rejected, despised, and came to serve instead of exploit, and ultimately die for a people who often reject his love and live in sin, but yet he gets glory in the shame. We couldn't have died on a cross to remove our sins. We weren't holy enough. We weren't God in the flesh. How does it fit in a world and a culture that views this entire story as kind of insane? How does it fit in a Christian subculture hungry for more entertainment, more trendy surface facades, hungry for more hype and comfort and convenience? It just doesn't matter. We've lost the beauty of the one in the form of God to come and die on the cross. Um, And all those choices and actions Jesus made intentionally. Aren't you glad that it was all based on grace and not even on how how much you appreciate that? Because maybe in the last week, month, two years, eight years, your appreciation level probably waned and waned and waned. Aren't you glad it's based on grace and he's holding you in grace and not how much you appreciate it or how good you did? Just a beautiful picture. And so then we go to the Father's heart, and it's pretty quick. We see the Father's heart, and the Father's actions, and the Father's restoration are all tied to what Jesus did. It says, therefore, and so the Father's heart was pausing and looking at that. It doesn't mean that he was surprised or he didn't know that, that Jesus was going to do that. It's going, that's me. That's exactly me. I'm in full agreement. That was me. That was my plan. That's what I did for you. That's my son. That's my son who who I'm well pleased. That reveals me the full image of God existing in human form right there. That's what I would do for you. That's what I've done for you. That was my plan for you. Um, So it takes away that idea of God being this angry, God the Father being this angry, miserly, bearded thing that's just frustrated, arms folded, Jesus being the 2.0 version that's all graceful and like, oh, if I could just get my Heavenly Father to to, uh, understand you guys and accept you guys more. No, No, this is the Father too. This is the Father's grace. This is the Father's love. And so the Father's saying, um, 
I agree with everything that's happened. You see the Father's heart in the therefore, in agreement with and based off of Christ's obedience. Um, Jesus didn't need salvation from sins. Jesus didn't need forgiveness. Jesus didn't need the type of restoration that we need to be made right with God. This heart of restoration to Jesus' previous state of highest glory is what God was aiming for here. He was going, I'm going to restore him back to that. If you read John 17, uh, one of my favorite sections, that's what Jesus is asking. Hey, Father, you know of my former glory. I'm leaving them now. I'm returning back to that glory. I've revealed myself to them. I've revealed your word to them. I'm returning to that high and exalted glory from before. So this idea of the, the, the Father's um, heart is seen in everything that Jesus has just done. And then the Father's actions, says in verse 9 there, God highly, therefore based off of all that, God highly exalted. And that's a category all by himself. In the Greek, those words highly exalted, it's not merely one step higher than great men. It's an incomparable status all alone in its own category by itself, set apart. Um, the, the incarnation and humiliation lead to restoration and glorification. Again, just shocking words just in this little bitty hymn. Um, this was the divine approval of Christ's work on the cross. It was vindication by God against His enemies, exalting Him to the highest place. Going not just above human names, or not just like hey, you're first place and all humans are second, third, fourth. Like you're in a category completely other, completely set apart. So God gave to him the name that is above every name. So everyone thinks, oh, it's, oh, it's Jesus. Well, there was a lot of Jesuses, by the way. There, there, there's Jesuses playing baseball. And so there's a lot of Jesuses around. Um, the word Lord, the name Lord is the name that he gave. So as we read that, the Father's restoration comes. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so it is true that it's ever, everyone bowing to Jesus. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And all that, that little phrase there was just for the, their thinking and the, the, the different religions at the time. And they, they thought of the, the world and our whole universe and all that in, in those three realms. So they, they thought of it in those realms. So he was saying, so no matter what your belief system is, um, here's those three realms that you look at, uh, heaven out there on the earth and then under the earth. And remember half the world that time thought the world was flat, right? So you're dealing with people that they had that understanding. And so to think through, um, man, he's saying everything is going to be restored. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that was, again, crazy to go, this Jesus guy, carpenter, lowly person, we did not see him as God. We killed him on a cross. He was incomparably with Yahweh of the Old Testament. Lord. Adonai. And so that picture there of him going, this Jesus in the ground dead, who now the story says that he rose, he didn't just rise from the grave. He was always existing as Lord, and God restored him as Lord, and every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that. So that does not lead to universalism. That does not lead to the point to mean that people who have lived in rejection of God their whole life and now when they get in front of God on judgment that they're going to go, oh, okay, hey, yeah, um, I see Jesus, you are Lord, and I'm going to bow my knee. And I, I, I see now that you're Lord, Jesus. And I, okay, well, you, you said the thing right, so you get to get go in. That's not universalism. This verse doesn't lead to universalism. There will be people that have their, their whole life, including angelic beings, Satan, 
that have rejected him their whole time, and they are going to bow. The greatest of enemies are going to bow and confess. It doesn't mean they love. Some will go on in hatred of him. It's going to just burn in them as they burn in hell that he was Lord of all. Every creature, creatures we can't even imagine, um, all living things. He's restoring all things, not just human beings, um, but everything restored. So a beautiful picture of God's power, God's sovereignty. Um, Jesus Christ is Lord. The hymn writer purposely holds off that closing line. The line dramatically lead up to that point. Um, that's the name that's referred to. So to the glory of God the Father. For Jewish monotheism or for the other gods of the region, this hymn equates Jesus in equality with God, and yet it, yet it still distinguishes between Jesus, the Son, and God the Father, and the Spirit. So again, early on, first 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, you're having a developed Trinitarian view now. You're having a developed um, Christology. What is true about Jesus? Oh, he's fully God and fully man. Oh, a Trinitarian view. God, God the Father is equal with God the Son, is equal with God the Spirit. So these things are being pieced together, and this little bitty hymn brings not only the beauty that we've seen there in God's um, beautiful picture of restoring Jesus to that former glory, but it's giving us a, a robust understanding of the Trinity. Um, God has in himself in all his perfections, this full display, this full appreciation, this full enjoyment of Jesus and what he's done, and says, I'm restoring you to that glory. And so um, it brings glory to Christ and glory to the Father. And all of that is revealing of who God is, who Jesus is, who the Spirit is, in those little verses there. So a beautiful little hymn. Glad that Paul included it. So in our closing walkaways, just wanted you to think through not again this is clearly i hope you see now this wasn't about hey how, how good are you going to do on monday through friday you ain't doing this right you, you ain't going to doing this stuff no incarnation for you this week no humiliation you might be humble in lots of ways but not this form right but and no exaltation to the place of being lord of all and so this isn't how much you're going to go do for god now this is sit back and, and be in awe and think deeply and, and be restored so I'd ask you, um, do you need some humility to where we, we are gazing solely at Christ, what he did? What does his incarnation and his humility speak to your heart right now when you, you think about those things that we just saw? Very few little lines. What does his cross mean to you? Every one of us. And so for you younger kids, when most of us growing up, we heard about this all the time. and it, Sometimes it gets lost, but you are going to stand before Christ. Um, you are going to stand before him and you're going to have to give an answer to that what did his cross mean to you if it's just a, 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 an idea of i know it existed that's not enough satan he was probably very close watching right he was front row um, many demons front row they know the cross exists they know jesus death they saw him raised from the grave that we didn't even get to see with our own physical eyes they saw it. It's not enough. It's what you, will you do with this cross? What you do, will you do with what we just read about in these little verses? Why does it matter? Every person ever born, every person we pass and see will answer, where are you in relation to his cross? And then the last one there is just, what does his exaltation speak to you? Are you living as if he's exalted? Are you living as if He's the number one thing in your life? Is he, is, are you living as if He is in the form of God? 
and that, that blows you away, and He's worthy of your worship, worthy of your choices, worthy of your life. So this should cause us to, to not only uh, should cause us to pause, but also to rest. If this is true, that's the beauty of the Gospel. It's not about my works. This isn't asking me to go do anything except be in awe and worship. So we've talked about rest. This would make you rest. Like, I'm so thankful that you did it all. I'm so thankful that you humbled yourself in my place, that you took on my sins, that you took on the cross for my sake, and I easily, enjoyably humble myself and, and submit to you and call on you as the loving Lord. And I'm in love with you for that. So let me pray as we close, as Brad comes up.